0: Hey guys, welcome to VS Energy's Commissioning Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey and Nick Taliska. In today's podcast, we will be discussing the design phase responsibilities of the commissioner, owner, and A&E. And I think a great great question to start this podcast out with with is why is the commissioning agent part of the design phase, including the design review? So I have a few, few points of why, and I'll let you, Nick and Mark, kind of elaborate on that when I run through these. But in my perspective, it's you need to integrate commissioning specifications into the overall specifications of the project. And this is the time to do that. It helps prevent mistakes that would be uncovered in you know further into the project. So the further we get into a project, those mistakes that may be seemingly simple in the design phase could be amplified a lot in the construction phase as in, you know, required um, manpower, money, whatever to, to fix those problems, this is the time to generate a preliminary commissioning plan. The commissioning agent coordinates the controls integrations meeting. So the, the commissioning agent really plays a large role in the design phase with coordination. and. As we talked about in our previous podcast, the OPR is extremely important. In this in this phase, again, the commissioning agent um, ensures the design is in accordance with the OPR. So, those are really the few points of my perspective of why, you know, the commissioning agent is plays a large role in the design phase. And I didn't know if Nick or Mark, you guys, had anything you want to add to that or elaborate on.
1: I'll start off and just say that, I mean, all the, all the items you talked about, Clayton have to do from my perspective with the continuity of the project and making sure that as you go from that initial phase all the way to when, you know, everybody's saying it's done, there is a, an eye on what the end goals were to start with. And like I said before, the number one reason from what I see why projects fail on so many dimensions is, uh. a a decoupling of some sort from uh, between the problem and the solution that
2: was intended to fix the problem. I, I would agree with Nick and I, in my, from my perspective, you can break it down into two categories really. And in general, either if I haven't internalized the OPR to the point where I know it chapter and verse, I always have a copy of the OPR with me so that at all times you can reference that OPR document and determine, okay, does this design meet the intent of the OPR? That's And if not, then we need to make some changes. The other kind of error that you can, you can uncover is the designer has an understanding of the OPR, but for whatever reason, the design as, as constructed, doesn't meet the intent. So one is, oh, we just forgot about a critical component of the OPR. And and the second part is for whatever reason, either equipment sizing or building envelope doesn't meet the intent of the OPR and has to be
0: remedied remedied from a a, um, design perspective. So does a commissioning agent looking at the design focus, say, you know, we're commissioning, we're talking about commissioning HVAC systems, right? So do they primarily just put their focus into the design of the mechanical systems per se and the building management system? Or as we talked about before, when you write the OPR, you really encompass the entirety of the project as as the the commissioning agent writing the OPR. Do you look at the entirety of the design? In general. If, if you're commissioning a building,
2: it's all of the building envelope, electrical, mechanical, lighting, plumbing, uh, all of the entire building. So if there is deviation, the CA or commissioning authority needs to be able to identify all of that in the Northeast, for instance, is there sufficient snow load capacity on the roof? Have we made accommodation for a vestibule or entryway to be able to let people, you know, not bring snow and salt into the main facility? Is the building cleanable? Is is, uh, all those things that should be captured in the OPR for a new building? As Nick has expressed in earlier podcasts, and, and we talked about In a retrofit situation, you write an OPR specific to the retrofit. And specifically with regard to ESPCs, the focus is typically on mechanical and electrical systems. And therefore, we've relegated our conversation largely to those aspects of commissioning. But in a new facility, you're commissioning everything from the building envelope all the way to the control system. So a fully integrated
1: approach then, Mark. Like like Clayton was was saying, with a you know, an HVAC modernization project where it might be a retrofit, let's say there's more of a boundary drawn around that scope of work, but the commissioning agents scope of work would include the mechanical side, the electrical side, the controls integration,
0: as well as the operations and maintenance too. Correct. Okay, so yeah, it, it encompasses everything still. And a question for you guys then too, is like part of ASHRAE 2005 says you, as a commissioning agent, you, as I mentioned before, coordinate the controls integrations meeting. You, you do a lot of coordination and maybe it's a dumb question, but it seems like there's a lot of project management involved as the commissioning agent. And why, where does the the PM come into place? Why aren't they coordinating these meetings and why is a commissioning agent doing that? Or do you see that occurring in reality? Again, the 2005 is a guideline. You know, does that follow through in the industry?
2: That's a, that's a good question. And so it, let's just take a uh, traditional design, uh, bid, build process. And The contractor typically will assign a project manager, so the owner, per se, may have their owner's rep uh, who guides the process to some extent, but may not have necessarily the complete skill set or spectrum of skills required to understand at the level of detail required the entire construction process and in the case where the contractor has a project manager on site there are somewhat divergent objectives from the perspective of the contractor and the perspective of the owner the contractor has a schedule constraint they have cost constraints the owner who has already gone through the process and with the commissioning agent engagement gone through a design process there's been a design review and now the project is under construction, has only one intent. That is, build a building that meets the owner's project requirements, is in compliance with the basis of design, and that's a competing objective compared to the contractor in some cases. And depending on how, how much divergence there is between the contractor and the owner, it's the commissioning authorities, basically their task to squeeze those those goals together and make sure that at the end the contractor builds a project which meets the OPR and is in compliance with the design and the basis of design documents.
1: But the project manager would still be heavily involved at this point, Mark, from your experience? Yes, yes. But more on the constructability side and other issues that really...
2: Or more of what his expertise is? Well, and, and, and it depends. If it's a design bid build project, there wouldn't get project manager until after the bidding process. If it's a uh, CM at risk, if it's, you know, another form of procurement, there may be a project manager assigned, in which case they would be bringing value engineering op- uh, uh, options to the table that, would be subject to review by the owner by the by the commissioning agent by the engineering firm all those things but sometimes you don't know the project manager until after the bids are open reviewed and accepted and then a project manager is assigned by the low
0: bidder on the project Hmm. good point yeah so that's all post design obviously and you need somebody to to carry the weight of in the design process it, pre-design even to coordinate everything. And that falls on the commissioning agent.
2: Correct. I mean, typically owners have
0: many other jobs
2: to do versus mind the construction of the building. Right. So then it falls to the commissioning authority, commissioning agent.
0: So another question for you gentlemen, then is obviously, as we said, the commissioning agent plays a large role in the design review, right? How, and maybe from, I'm asking from your experience, how often is there, where do you draw the line? You're not the designer and you probably don't necessarily want to be the designer for uh, legality reasons per se, but it seems like there's a, a large opportunity for scope creep as the commissioning agent to get dragged into more than maybe you're required to or you should. And how do you, where do you draw the line and how do you draw that line? So I'll address that quickly. I mean, with some brevity, I think.
2: During the design review, if there are non-compliant designs, they don't meet the the OPR, they won't function for any number of reasons. It's a simple response, you know, this, this doesn't work and here's why. And basically don't offer, it's not the, and in fact, ASHRAE 2005 speaks to this. That the commissioning entity should not be part of the design team, period. Uh, they shouldn't be either employed by the design team or subcontracted by the design team or employed by the contractor or subcontracted by the contractor. They work work for the owner. So you have to be able to communicate effectively that for whatever reason, if designs are non-compliant or otherwise not workable that that's the responsibility of the any firm and you go back to that and say you know all of these things look great it looks like we have some gaps deficiencies or oversights in these areas and they need more attention but it, it's it, it is scope creep can occur and it can occur either at the request or direction of the owner but aside from that it's the Uh, CA's responsibility to manage their own scope so that there isn't scope creep.
0: Don't volunteer. Right. You just need to say, no, you don't need to give them a, here's, here's an alternative. Just no, this doesn't align with the OPR for these reasons. Maybe you say for these reasons, and then that's it. You don't need to give them options because yeah, that's I suppose one scope creep can occur. Now, when
1: you mentioned that the scope creep and there was something Clayton, you mentioned in your introduction uh, for this episode about integrating commissioning specs, Mm -hmm. into the overall specs of the project. And maybe Mark, I was interested in some of the things maybe you could share. What would be some commissioning type spec uh, specifications that maybe wouldn't be in the original design specs and other than the act of actually performing commissioning, but what other type of language would a
2: commissioning authority want to see in there? So what, when asked to provide specs or when we provide specs for projects, it's, it's relatively simple in terms of first, there's the physical component. Let's define the boundaries of commissioning. And it goes back to Nick with what you've said earlier and, and what Clayton talked about. Let's define the systems and or the boundaries that, the project will have. So it might be mechanical, electrical, plumbing, fire protection, fire alarm, other signaling systems or specialty systems, building envelope, whatever it is, let's define the boundaries and then define the process. And we typically uh, refer to ASHRAE 2005 as the process guideline. And from there, if there are specific systems that we think require additional attention, give some boundaries for the pre-functional test requirements and the functional tests. So some specificity to how the functional tests need to be performed and recorded and what the performance characteristics are that need to be met. But really, the two major things we want to talk about are the boundaries of commissioning, and then reference and incorporate by reference the ASHRAE
0: 2005 guideline. When you say boundaries of commissioning, you're the commissioning agent. So why do you need to put you do you put that in the spec to I don't want to say protect but kind of just clarify what your expectations are for you to do? You know what I'm trying to get at like if you're the, already the commissioning agent and you know what you're going to do. Why do you need to put information in the specification?
2: Well, you need to, you need to clarify it for the owner. And especially that you, you need to put that in the specification on a retrofit project, because otherwise the scope creep becomes scope, scope creep potential just goes on and on. Right. It, it, you have to stop at some point where, okay, we're, connected to an older mechanical electrical plumbing system and if for some reason everything up to the point of that connection works and during commissioning and functional testing everything's proven to be working up to the point where it connects to an old system outside the boundaries of commissioning sure we can can carry that on but you can't by contract make that A requirement of commissioning because you could be commissioning far more than is even in the base project. Well, and a good point about,
1: I think, defining the boundaries is that it does, especially when we're talking about being involved early in the process, that it does help focus, I guess, the mind on really what is the uh, the areas that we're impacting, and what are the ultimate goals? And I guess if you contrast that with coming in during construction or after construction, I think that's very. It can be very limiting to define the boundaries then, as opposed to being involved with the design team up front
0: as far as working towards a a successful project in the end. Agreed. Yep, that makes sense. And and then obviously it allows the the contractors to understand what what they you know I don't it's not I don't know how to word it the best, but everyone just has a full understanding of the the entirety of the project, what the expectations are for each entity. Clarifies everything, it seems. So that well, makes uh, sense.
2: Uh, Nick, you have plenty of experience with federal government, et cetera. And just take, for example, we start to commission a system that adds, we we add new load onto a water plant and all of a sudden, Hey, the water plant is out of gas. We're out of tonnage. What would happen? Well, the contractor, the contracting officer gets a notice that there's unexpected existing conditions and there needs to be a mod that addresses that, which, takes it way outside the scope of the existing contract and either they remedy it or they accept the situation as it is until such time as a capital project or emergency repair can be funded.
0: So I think I'm going to switch gears a little bit and move, I don't know if you want to call it in the next step of the design phase, but I reading through ASHRAE 2005, I, I found this interesting. That guideline actually states that A, The commissioning agent has involvement in the basis of design generation and the way it looks and the way i read it is the commissioning agent actually submits the format of the basis of design to the designers so that i found interesting that the commissioning agent is the one that says this is here's your guideline for the basis of design again just asking as 2005 is a guideline and not a requirement is that something that you guys follow through with an in industry or you see in industry when you you are the commissioning agent well the, when we
2: say the format i think that really speaks to definition of the boundaries more than anything else okay the, so the basis of design is basically the document that gives verbal credence to the methods and equipment in the design So depending on the level of detail that you would expect from the designer and where the project boundaries stop, those are really the two things that are included in the outline and format that is requested for the BOD.
0: Okay, so you're not necessarily giving them a a Word document with, here's a a fill-in-the-blank section for this one, this one, this one, for your BOD. You're just you're kind of giving more guidelines and expectations as opposed to, you know, here's your format. Like I would, you know, think it would be again, a word document with fill in the blank stuff. And that's not the case. Well, I don't see anything wrong
1: with that necessarily. Not that that exact form needs to be filled in, but in a lot of the ways, this goes to setting the expectations of, you know, this, this is the content and level of detail you know, that that we're going after in a basis of design document. So I think it could be very helpful, but if you work with experienced firms or that, that firms that have experience working with the commissioning authority, then they probably have an idea of what the, the BOD is going after. But right. I think forms and templates are can be very beneficial to show someone.
0: And you kind of lead me into my next question, actually, Nick, do you guys often see Your typical A and E firms, open or I don't want to say inviting to the commissioning agent being so heavily involved in the process. I don't know if it that occurs a lot. It seems like sometimes the A and E kind of takes the ball and runs with it from the the get go, and that obviously can cause problems with failed expectations down the road. But is is it a constant battle with A and E's saying, you know, this is where I need to be involved for these reasons, and and they kind of giving you or allowing you to do your job? I think it probably depends. I mean, at least my experience
1: has been, you know, when an A&E firm has that relationship with the owner, it can be a little bit more difficult process if they're not used to working with a commissioning authority or agent. But other times when that system or that process is a little more entrenched and they've had success, then it really operates quite
2: smoothly. I I would say, Mark, what about you? In, in some cases, it, it does operate very smoothly. I mean, that is really dependent on the owner setting the expectations early on that we're following and abiding by this process where you know the commissioning agent is driving the, the bus or the truck and everybody else is along for the ride, but we're all headed to the same destination. That said, if those expectations aren't set up up front, it degenerates into a Three Stooges episode where Curly, Larry, and Mo are all fighting over the steering wheel while the bus is riding down the road. It's a bad day. And that can continue for a while or it can stop when the owner says, okay, let's stop the truck, everybody out, and here's where we're headed and here's who's driving.
1: I think that's a real good point about the the owner's involvement in championing the role of a commissioning authority in the project, I don't think can be understated as far as how that helps the, I guess, the whole team come together, like you said, in pursuing one ultimate goal or a set of goals. But ideally, everybody understanding that to get the quality we want of this project, everybody involved needs to take the proper responsibility. And a lot of times that's what the commissioning authority is helping to formalize
0: is what is everybody's role in this project and i can imagine you know we're talking about the design phase in this episode but the later the commissioning agent becomes involved in the process the harder that is to allow the commissioning agent to uh, do their job necessarily but there's probably a little bit more struggle and trust involved from the the other stakeholders and players if a commissioning agent gets involved later in the project. Yeah, no, I I
1: couldn't agree more. I mean, that sends a lot of signals in itself that, you know, this, this particular team, let's say the commissioning team, you know, we didn't see the importance of having them involved early, but we're going to bring them in now. Yeah. that, That can, you know, create some, some friction that needs to be worked through. I mean, not unworkable, but definitely smoother if you approach this mindset, or have this
2: mindset from the start. I agree with that. And I think that there's, you have to draw some distinction because th- there are specifications that occur. And we talked in, about this in earlier podcasts that the commissioning spec could be as simple as commission the project period. So there's commissioning that's performed with an intended purpose to improve the performance of the building, to improve the constructability of the design, to improve the performance of the design and the building overall. And then there is commissioning that occurs purely for the optics and semantics of maintaining commissioning on a project. We commissioned a project a couple of years ago for a power plant, no less, and gave them an original proposal. It was a, it was a lot of money. And uh, it included a boiler max study, minimum acceptable controls technology. And they said, that's too much money. Said, well, that's what it's going to cost. Well, here's what we really need. We need a commissioning report that says everything works okay and the controls are calibrated. Well, that's not a commissioning report. So we ended up doing basically a partial commissioning that showed and found some serious issues with the operation. And this is a big plant, a million pounds an hour of 600 PSI steam, big plant, that found some serious issues that made it very difficult for it to pass its minimum acceptable controls technology. But their intent was not necessarily to have the the system commissioned because they were of the mindset that they knew exactly what they were doing and how it should be done. And things were running the way they're supposed to be, but to meet a regulatory requirement, which was very nonspecific in terms of the actual commissioning process. So you have to draw that distinction. Is it being done just for the optics to say that we had the bill and commission and check the box on a form required by a government or other regulatory agency, or is it being done with the intended purpose of improving the overall building performance, improving the constructability and improving the conditions inside the building for the occupants.
0: That's a great point. And actually that's that, that will lead into a question that I'll ask in a, a little bit later in this podcast. But uh, again, another question for you guys is in the design phase, as the commissioning agent, I want to word this, right. But is there a lot of like, what's the involvement like? And obviously it changes from job to job and magnitude and scope, but is there a lot of back and forth between your AE and your, and the commissioning agent in the design phase? Is the, I don't want to, I want to paint a picture. Is the, is the commissioning agent and the A&E, you know, are they sitting at a, a, a round table working through problems or is this a lot of, Paper tossing back and forth with emails. I know it can vary. Probably, what do you guys prefer? Kind of paint me a picture of the the process. You just painted it. Okay, That's both ends of the spectrum.
2: Yep. <laughs> um, the, it it can be all the way from A and E's designing in a vacuum, basically with very little interaction, until there are formal document reviews scheduled at maybe thirty. 70, 90%. Right. All the way up to very frequent interactions, either by video conference, phone, or in person, with questions, concerns. And I you know, we talked about this in the last podcast as well. It really comes down to establishing a trust factor with the owner, with the AE, so that there is a true collaborative effort amongst the parties to achieve the common objective without that you, you get the uh, isolation between entities and that can breed a, uh, how do you want to basically sniping by, by all parties. So commissioning in some cases happens because there needs to be somebody to blame when things go South. Well, we don't want to blame anything we we want everybody to high five at the end and say this was a great job because we worked together as a team because we were all qualified capable and collaborated so if if everyone enters into it with the positive and proper intent it's a great process but if it if it starts to become uh, compartmentalized with design occurring in a vacuum with the commissioning agent engaging on a limited and critical basis versus a collaborative basis. It can be, it can be very tough.
1: And I think that's an important point there that, you know, we talk about the commissioning authority being involved early and and there's plenty of examples of that, but maybe the relationships were more contentious contentious than they needed to be because the involvement and the team aspect of it and we're all working towards the same goal is really not set up from the beginning. And conversely, there's been times when the commissioning authority is brought in quote unquote towards the end of the project, but still the right, I guess environment is established that it's, it's, it's accepted and the project does go smooth from there as smooth as it can go. But just because you're involved early on, I think there's a lot more, more dynamics at stake that can really, that need to be managed to make sure just that
0: things go smoothly from there. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And Mark, to your point, I, I, I hate to say it, but it seems like I have a feeling more often than not, there is a lot of design in the vacuum. And yeah, I don't know, maybe the CA, the commissioning agent sees the 50% design, you know, at the 50% design review. And, and even at that point, you can, you can probably say some projects, you notice a lot of mistakes that you still have to step back quite a bit to remediate at the 50% amount. And some of that can be mitigated by being involved right from the get-go and constantly communicating. I think the vacuum analogy happens, from my experience, quite a bit. (laughs) Um,
2: Well, I agree with that. And I I think you're probably right it happens more than it should happen but think think back and I, I can probably surmise the projects you're speaking about think back to those projects and how well written was the opr or was there an opr yeah, that's true written yep and so there was no guideline that said the owner expects blah 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 and once we got to the 50% design review it wasn't Everybody sit down, let's pull out the OPR. At that point, we were negotiating an OPR that was only available inside the owner's head and had never been memorialized or documented in any way. And the owner was, well, I I don't really want this. Well, it's because nobody took the time to write an OPR, put it in writing, circulate it, get agreement on it. And
0: now we know what we're designing to Right, so that yeah, you can't necessarily blame the A and E for not knowing. They need to under have a full understanding of what they're designing to, or else yeah, you're not you're gonna miss Otherwise, the target it's every a time. Target, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that makes sense too. There's a there's there's more responsibility than just the A and E doing what they need to do. It's uh, it starts from the beginning, like as we've That's said true. in this episode and many before. The OPR is really the critical document that, and following that OPR makes everything run smoothly. But that
1: takes time. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of these steps may be maybe missed. People are excited to get the project going sometimes.
0: Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm.
1: and it takes a lot of work to really set the stage here for you know documents that, you know, are not going to be needed till sometime down the road, but they're good to have it's good to have that forethought put into it before you get to that point which we're all guilty of. And even the little projects we do. Yep. You just want to get
2: going. Talking about um, why the uh, engineers operate in a vacuum or why is there so much discussion of the 50% design review? And it's because there hasn't been a documented OPR and owners sit down at a 50% design review and say, well, I didn't really want that. I don't want this. I don't want, you know, the, the, programming of the facility per se has not been done and hasn't been documented and the OPR hasn't been written. So the engineer took their few notes from the first part of the, you know, hey, here's what the owner wants and they have a concept. Uh, And now at the the 50% design review, we're negotiating the OPR and how the building should perform, look, etc., because nothing was documented up front. So your point
1: being that the, the OPR being such a foundational document that without it, when you get to a 50% design uh, stage, you, you could be finding yourself at far less than 50% designed. Right. With, and doing
0: rework, R- rework, cost money, takes time. Mark clarified that, you know, he kind of saw how I was gearing it towards, well, you, you want to blame that on the A&E maybe, but without that document, they themselves may not know. If they don't know what the owner wants, how do they design to what the owner wants? So that's where it all wraps back into the OPR being critical because you want to sometimes blame the engineering firm for not doing it right. But if it wasn't clear what the owner wanted from the beginning, it can be challenging. So Agreed.
2: Oh, right. If, without a strong foundation correctly built, it's impossible to build a, a perfect building or even meet your OPR objectives. So, And it happens all the time. It's Once you start construction and you don't have an OPR, you don't have a design that meets the OPR, It's practically impossible to build a building that will
0: meet the project requirements. So I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I'm going to bring up the point again. And I know we've we've discussed this again in our previous episodes, but it also seems like owners probably don't want to always spend the money to have the commissioning agent involved until they, they think they need them involved. And that may not be part of the design phase. But as we've said, for other phases, and we'll say for uh, consecutive phases, if you think you're saving money by having the commissioning agent not involved until the end, but some of those problems that can be vetted out, especially in the design phase, I think this is a critical part for the commissioning agent to be involved in. You think you're saving money by not having those man hours or the commissioning agent involved, but at the end of the project, if you have problems that are found, reworks expensive, redesigns expensive, any kind of rework. So so that, that's a good point. Clayton. And here's, here's my take on that. You never get
2: a better price on anything than on bid day. So by virtue of failing to incorporate either rigorous functional testing requirements or the documentation associated with uh, commissioning engagement by the contractors and, and all those things, uh, If you go back after the fact and ask the contractor to include those, the price will be 1.5x that would be on bid day. The same thing is true on any items that are omitted, overlooked, need rework because of either design uh, miscues, missteps, or omissions. If you need to go back and ask for that after the original procurement date, the cost per item will be higher that's just the simple economics because nothing breeds cost competitiveness like either competition or the pretense of competition. So once a contractor has, and you know, there's a hundred ways that people try and combat that Well, we have open book pricing, we have cost plus, we have blah, blah, blah. That's all baloney. Competition is what reduces cost. So, If it's not incorporated in the original procurement documents and needs to be added after the fact, it will cost more than you would have paid on bid day. Oh, I think that is such an understated point,
1: Mark. That's for for new construction. I think that's, that's great. And I think that's a pretty
2: key point for owners to remember. In general, commissioning agents have sufficient experience. They have tenure in the industry. To be able to assist A and E firms or provide guidance to A&E firms or just reminders about specifics that would like that should be incorporated to meet the OPR. And by providing a very, very complete set of documents on bid day, you ultimately get better prices
0: and reduced change orders. Yep. And I can imagine, you know, from what I've seen. You're not only paying for it, not on bid day, So you're going to obviously be paying more as we discussed, but you probably already paid for something that then you don't need or don't want. So you're paying more for what you actually need and you already paid for something, an aspect of it that you don't need. So it's kind of a double whammy, you know, At, at least from what I see on jobs, you've already done something and then you need to step back and say, Oh, we actually, we didn't need that. We didn't need that cable run wire run and, whatever, installed, anything. So you pay for it. Again, you pay for it twice, which obviously is expensive.
2: So you're paying for something that to be installed that is what you don't want. That needs to be removed. A new item needs to be installed. And all of that occurs at retail price or more than retail price.
0: Yep, I agree
2: completely.
1: I wonder how different... Uh... Because at least from what I see with the, you know, more performance-based projects, and they definitely follow more of a design-build type of approach, where the installing contractor is ultimately the one responsible for the results, which are usually keyed in on terms of energy savings, dollar savings. So I think in the industry, I work in a lot that maybe that. If I was a contractor, I think I'd be more interested in having a commissioning authority on my team, as opposed to if I was the owner, because I think a lot of times in those situations, the owner just expects, well, we better get the savings that were promised to us, or, you know, they have to do all the rework and they
2: have to do everything to make us, you know, whole essentially. Well, as uh, you know, in the case of an ESPC, they, you know, have a tough job to start with and obviously they're working within a set of numbers that may or may not be conducive to adding in extras typically not so if anything you're looking for options in 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 conjunction with the commissioning authority to reduce costs, increase performance, and really do value engineering. And when it's done right, I mean, that business model with a a good commissioning agent is not a bad business model, but it has to be guided by some document, again, the owner's project requirements.
0: Fully agree. Yeah, guys, that makes perfect sense. You want to have the commissioning agent involved in the design phase. To help mitigate problems that can arise down the road. And it, it's money well spent up front, to Mark's point. And then, Mark, just tell me a little bit about, as part of the design phase, why it's important to identify all the integrations and controls requirements clearly in the specifications and how that can prevent also issues down the road. So, When commissioning
2: agents are commissioning integrated projects versus standard controls integration, so an integration project is a retrofit, and there is an extraordinary amount of data exchange between multiple systems, that commissioning entity has to provide, bring to the table, a different set of tools and a different set of skills, because first you have to understand what the data is that's being passed from system to system, how it's packetized, how how it's sent, where it's sent to, and what it's supposed to do when it gets there. And that may include, okay, for instance, we're doing a large-scale demand response system where the measurement of the demand takes place on one system. Specific commands are being sent across the network in protocol A, being converted to protocol B and taking action at a secondary control system so that data exchange needs to be monitored confirmed that it's correct and the corresponding integrated control system action needs to be confirmed and that's a little more detailed process than occurs in what we would cons- what we would call traditional commissioning entities commissioning integrated control systems is a little bit more challenging.
0: Yeah, guys. And and that's a, Mark, that's a great way to end this episode. I think just we can't state enough how important it is to have the commissioning agent involved in all of the phases of the project. And you can't just bring them in on the end because A, they can identify a lot of mistakes that probably could have been mitigated. And B, we're a team working towards a common goal, as you said. So Everybody wants to finish with a successful project and having all of the the stakeholders, the, the team members involved for the entirety of the project makes it run smoothly, I would say. So guys, stay tuned. Well, thanks for listening and stay tuned for our next episode. We'll be discussing the installation phase responsibilities of the commissioning agent. And if you see the trend, we're going to be really discussing each of the phases outlined in the ASHRAE 2005 guideline to the completion to outline what is, what is involved in all of these phases for the commissioning agent. So thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed the episode and have a great day.